0: Welcome to another Bible study, another uh, study through, through 1 Corinthians. I hope you have your Bibles in front of you. We're going to be going through chapter 6, verse by verse. See, I'm so out of sorts, I don't even know how to do numbers with my hands. Chapter 6, verse by verse. So let's get to it. Uh, Paul has basically one more chapter before he starts addressing the specific items that the Corinthians wanted him to talk about. Uh, I I find it funny in a way that the Corinthians had written Paul with specific requests. We have these questions we want you to deal with, Paul. We want you to answer for us. And he waits until chapter 7 to even get to the things that they wanted him to deal with, which makes me think, when I pray, how often is God sitting there saying, "Okay, I get it, Jeff, you're concerned about this, and therefore I'm concerned about it. But let me tell you what you should be concerned about. Um, I think that's what's going on here with with the Apostle Paul and his friends in Corinth. So this chapter, I'll, I'll just give you this little setup. It deals with some heavy stuff. It deals with some things that you and I should find very convicting. But at the same time, there's some really incredibly exciting news in this chapter, some things that should more than make your day. They should uh, change your life if you've never thought about them this way. So let's start with verse 1 of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So Paul, once again, is raising yet another issue that he sees in the church in Corinth that the Corinthians themselves didn't take seriously. And this is, these Corinthian Christians are having disputes, having disagreements with one another. That shouldn't be surprising since Paul spent the first four chapters talking about the need for greater unity in the church. But what is surprising, what is alarming is instead of resolving those issues among themselves, they're taking one another to court. They're filing lawsuits. Now, why was it wrong for the Corinthian Christians to take each other to court? Is it still wrong for us today? What should they have done instead? That's what, that's what uh, we're gonna look at tonight in these 11 verses. We're not gonna cover all of chapter six, uh, but we'll cover the first 11 verses. So verse two, "'Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world?' And if the world is to be judged by you how are you are you incompetent to try trivial cases do you not know that we are to judge angels how much more then matters pertaining to this life now the paul makes a couple of tantalizing statements in this chapter in these two verses I just read. And I say tantalizing because they raise issues that are exciting to us, possibilities, but he doesn't give us enough details. He says, don't you know you're supposed to judge the world? Don't you know that you and I, the people of God, we're going to judge angels? And as 21st century Christians, our response is probably, no, Paul, actually, I didn't know that. Where do you get that from? Paul's an apostle. He is in contact with God. God has placed a charge on his life that he hasn't given to me or to anyone else in this age. Um, and so that shouldn't surprise us that Paul knows stuff we, sh- we don't know. But I did some research. I tried to look up where else is there information on us judging the world or judging angels in the next life. And here's what I came up with. Uh, Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus is talking to his 12 disciples And he says, don't you know that you, when when I come back, when I renew the world, then you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if that was the only verse in the Bible about that, we would say, okay, that's Jesus's specific promise to his 12 disciples and no more. But there's more. Besides what we just read from Paul, there's Paul's other statement in 2 Timothy 2.12, where he says, if we endure with Christ. In other words, if we don't give up, if we don't quit following him in the midst of temptation and frustration, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And then in Revelation 2.26, you probably are aware, if you're not, I'll tell you, the second and third chapters of Revelation are specific messages to the seven letters, I'm sorry, the seven churches that were the original recipients of Revelation. They're, they're Jesus' personalized messages to those seven churches. So in his personalized message to the church in a city called Thyatira in Revelation 2.26, he says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. To him I will give authority over the nations. So this accords with what Paul says, that uh, people who persist with Jesus and stick with him to the end, we're going to rule the world in a sense. We're going to judge nations. And then Revelation 321, also a personalized letter to a church back then, this one to the church at Laodicea. Paul says, the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So we will share a throne with Jesus. These are all, again, tantalizing statements. We wish we had more detail. Uh, we don't know exactly what it means. In what sense will we judge others? In what sense will we judge angels? Will it simply be a case of uh, fallen angels will stand before us and will say, Hey, I experienced demonic oppression in my life. And so, you know, you attacked a child of God and therefore you deserve punishment. I don't know. Uh, when it talks about us judging the nations, I don't know what to do with that, honestly. All I know is, at the very least, it should make our common misconceptions about heaven seem rather silly. I've I've said it many, many times, but the idea that we're gonna be lounging around on clouds and playing harps and wearing white robes seems ridiculous. That's not biblical at all. And even the idea that we argue about, well, is there gonna be golf in heaven? Is there gonna be fishing in heaven? Is there gonna be this or that or antique shopping or whatever your favorite hobby is? It ought to make you say, you know, if there's that, fine. But we've got important work to do in the new earth. We're going to be tasked with some important stuff. Uh, we're going to have a tremendous honor. It also ought to make you think with wonder about some of the people who are most faithful to Jesus in this world. They're not respected. You think of a, a little lady, uh, an elderly woman who's been faithful to Jesus her whole life, who is much too humble, much too gentle and kind to ever insist upon her own way, and so people treat her with disrespect. And think about that same woman in the New Earth having such authority that people will want to bow and scrape before her. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I think there's that may be part of what Jesus was talking about when he said the first will be last and the last will be first. There's going to be a great reversal of earthly values in the next life. But the point. Jesus is making. I mean, all of that's good. All of that is biblical thinking and it's good to dwell on it and try to tease out further meaning. But the point Paul's making, because he assumes we already know all that, the point he's making is, man, if Jesus is making you qualified to judge nations someday, don't you think right now you're qualified to judge between Abraham and, and Ricardo over here who are disputing over whether Abraham's ox uh, gored Ricardo's ox and, and who should pay back who? I mean, don't you think he you're, you're qualified to, d- to judge in a dispute between Mary and Susan because Mary is Susan's boss and Susan feels like she's been cheated out of wages? Don't you think you are qualified to judge between a husband and wife whose marriage is at a, at a breaking point and they need somebody to arbitrate between them? Don't you think that we, as God's people, don't need special qualifications to sit and listen to the dispute between two brothers or sisters in Christ and say, here's a third way, here's a win-win situation that that will solve your problem, that will bring you, the two of you back together and help you to love each other again and not disturb the unity of his church. That's what Paul's saying. So he goes on in verse four. And verse four is the most difficult verse to understand in this whole chapter. He says, so if you have such cases, Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Now, the reason this is hard to to interpret is because it's tough to translate and not to get too deep into the weeds of the Greek, Uh, not for me to pretend that I'm a, a great Greek scholar. I'm not. But there are basically two different ways that Greek scholars interpret this verse. Some scholars look at it and they interpret it the way it's interpreted in my Bible, the ESV, which is... Uh, If you have these difficult cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? What Paul seems to be saying in that interpretation is a secular judge has no standing within the church. This is not to disrespect people who are judges in secular law courts. Some of those people are Christians. This is not to say their job is unimportant. What he's saying is their, their purview does not extend to matters between brothers and sisters in Christ. Another way to look at it is this is a family matter. Why are you bringing in some outsider who has nothing to do with us when we as a family can settle this on our own? So maybe that's what Paul's saying. The other way uh, scholars interpret this, this is what you see in the King James Version. This is what you see in the NIV. In fact, here's what the NIV says in verse four. It says, appoint as judges, even men of little account in the church. So in this case, in this interpretation, Paul's not talking about secular judges. He's saying, why not just appoint the, the least respected person in your church, even that guy is better qualified than someone outside the congregation because he has the spirit of Christ inside of him. Even if you chose the, the least mature person, the least wise person in your congregation, he has better qualifications. So this is, in this interpretation, Paul is being uh, a little sarcastic. Either way, the point is the same. Either way, the point is, judge these disputes within the family of Christ, within the family of God, the body of Christ, not in, in the outside world. Now, why? Verse five, he says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? So Paul is doing two things here. Number one, he's indicting their lack of discipleship. He's saying, have you Corinthians done such a poor job of preaching the gospel to one another and of growing each other in Christ as disciples? Have you done such a a terrible job of the essential responsibility of a church that there's not one wise man or woman in your congregation who you would trust to, to act as a neutral third party to resolve disputes? And that should tell us something. That should tell us that our job as a church is not just to grow numerically, it's not just to win people to salvation, Our job is to raise up men and women in the fruits of the Spirit, in the wisdom that comes from knowing God, from the fear of the Lord. And if that's the case, if we're a disciple-making church and not just a a church that draws people in, if we're a disciple-making church, then anytime you're mad at me or I'm mad at you and we can't settle it ourselves, we could just walk down the aisle and choose any random person in the church and that person would be mature enough, humble enough, wise enough to sit down between the two of us and we each tell our stories and he or she would be able to say well here's a solution what do you think and it would work that's the way it should be within the church so he's indicting their discipleship but he's also telling them here's what your priority should be he says you do this in front of outsiders you do this in front of unbelievers so Paul's concern is number one, the lack of discipleship, but more importantly, his concern is the impression this is making on people outside the church. And this is something I come back to often and Christians will push back on this church members and friends of mine will say why do you talk so much about uh how we should pay attention to unbelievers when we post on social media when we uh when we argue amongst ourselves when we uh we get involved in political discussions and so forth and so on how, why are you so concerned with what others think of us it's not that i care let me let me rephrase that it's not that i should care what an unbeliever thinks of me or you, or us. Jesus made it clear that if if we wanna be the cool kids, it's it's never gonna work. In other words, the world hated him, the world will find reasons to hate us as well. But we should care about how we're representing Jesus. We should care about how our actions, our priorities and decisions reflect on his name in the community. The world needs to see something different in us something different in a compelling way. So let's move on to uh, verse six. I'm sorry, verse seven. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Now here's the core of the argument. Here's where Paul is Getting down to the real reason for what he's saying. And, and this, is, this is where this whole argument about lawsuits goes beyond just legal matters. This applies to every area of our lives. He let me let me just compare what Jesus said about a similar issue in Matthew 5, 25 through 26. This is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 25 through 26, Jesus said. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, why do I read that? Here's an important principle in interpreting Scripture. If you can find another part of the Bible that talks about the same subject, it is absolutely crucial for you to study that and compare the two passages and say, what are the commonalities? What is is the Spirit of God saying from two different people in two very different situations? What can I take from these two? So what is Jesus saying back in Matthew 5? He's saying, if you've got a legal dispute with someone, and by the way, just to give some context, Jesus has just gotten through talking about If your brother has something against you and you're at worship, leave your gift on the altar and go be reconciled with him and then come back and offer your gift, which we're familiar with. We've heard sermons on before. We've been told it doesn't do any good to come into God's house and sing all these great songs and give offerings and and listen to a sermon. If you know you've got hatred in your heart against a brother, go and reconcile with it. We're all familiar with that teaching. I don't know how often we practice it, but we're familiar with it. So Jesus has just gotten through saying that, and then he goes into this uh, this argument about if you have a legal dispute with someone and someone is accusing you. So I think he's talking about when there's disputes between brothers. I think what he's saying is when you your brother has something against you, and it has gotten to the point where the two of you can't work it out and he wants to take you to court. Jesus says, you need to redouble your efforts to work it out with him before the case hits the docket. Why? Because you could be stubborn and say, I'm right and he's wrong and I'm gonna stand my ground and I'm gonna win this case. But what if you don't? What if you don't and you end up getting thrown in jail? In in the ancient world, if, if you were assessed a fine and you couldn't pay it, you ended up in jail. You might even end up in slavery. Jesus says, why risk that? why not rather make things right with your brother? So Jesus's principle there is your relationship with your brother is more important than whatever grievance you have. In other words, your relationship with your brother is more important than your rights. We think a lot about our rights these days. We gripe a lot about, well, this person is infringing upon my rights, or this, or the government is, is, uh, is overstepping their bounds and, and taking away our rights. And I'm not saying our rights aren't important, but where do we find in Scripture that we should stand up for our rights? Instead, don't we always find love your neighbor, love your brother, love your sister? That's the principle. So that's Jesus's teaching. For Paul, the principle is, so, so again, Jesus's principle is your relationship with your brother is more important than whatever legal dispute you have between you. For Paul, the core of the matter is not just your relationship with your brother, but also our reputation in the community, the reputation of the church of Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus among unbelievers. Paul cannot believe that these Corinthian Christians are so selfish and stubborn, they would rather stand in a law court where these secular Greeks and Romans look at them and say, look at those Christians. I thought they were supposed to be different, but they're squabbling just like we do. Apparently there's nothing really to this gospel and Paul says that ought to break your heart. In fact, he says and this is just staggering, why not prefer to be wronged? And he takes he means that literally. We should take that literally. We should say to ourselves, I could win this case, but do I really win in that case? I could win this case. I could I could overcome this fellow Christian who has hurt my feelings or wounded my pride or stolen some money from me, I could win this case, but even if I do, doesn't it make the whole church look bad? Doesn't it doesn't it hurt the name of Jesus? Shouldn't I settle this dispute with him personally? Don't take them to court, in other words. Don't sue to get justice. Instead, let someone within the church settle it for you. Let someone within the church judge between you. Now, why does he say in verse 8 that you're defrauding one another? I think the reason he says that is because the ancient law courts were notoriously corrupt. Can you hear the train? The train's passing by. Perfect timing. Let's not sue the railroad company, right? One more. Okay. I think he's passed. All right. So, uh, yeah, the ancient law courts were notoriously corrupt. A slave could not sue his master. A a wife could not sue her husband. Uh, A child could not sue his parents. Um, A social inferior could not successfully sue his social superior. Remember, the Roman system of law, of society, in fact, was very much stratified. You had the slaves on the bottom, and then the freedmen, and then the citizens, and then uh, the aristocracy, and on top was Caesar, and it was very much a, a pyramid leading to the top. And so if someone was further up the ladder than you, then you had no hope of winning a lawsuit against them. But they could sue you. James talks about this. Why do y'all love the rich so much, James says, when they're the ones who drag you into court and steal all your money? Well, the reason for that is if you were wealthier or if you were socially superior, you were pretty much guaranteed to win. The people who were sitting on that jury were not going to rule against you because you might there then come back and get justice on them, get vengeance on them. Uh, On the other hand, if you were a socially superior person, you had the money to bribe the jury, to bribe the judge, and you got the justice you wanted. So what Paul is saying is, you could win, but you're not really winning. You're cheating your brother. You're, You're disgracing the name of Jesus and you're cheating your brother. By the way, Our our legal system today is probably the best in the world today, but it's still not perfect. There's a lot of injustice in our legal system. I don't think a whole lot has changed in the last 2,000 years. The Roman system of justice was the best in the world at the time. This was the most civilized nation on earth, and yet there was rampant injustice. And if you think there's not injustice today, let me just tell you one name. Robert Durst. If you don't know his name, you can Google it after we're done. But here's a guy who is... an heir, uh, he, he inherited uh, tons of money, and he's apparently killed at least three people. Never spent any time in jail, he's never been found guilty. Uh, dismembered one of them and put him in Galveston Bay. Admitted that, he still wasn't found guilty of anything. A person who was poor, if they were even suspected of, some, uh, of half the things that Robert Durst did, they would be sent to jail for life. Our system is not perfect. It advantages those who have money, the money to hire the right lawyers, the money to work the system. And so what Paul is saying is, you may have the money to work the system. You may have the know-how. You may even be an attorney yourself. You may be able to win a case like this. It doesn't mean you should. First, you should ask yourself, is me pursuing this case gonna result in defrauding my brother or sister? Is it gonna result in disunity within the body of Christ? And most of all, is it gonna result in disgrace for the name of Jesus among the lost? Now, this isn't saying that it's always wrong to use the legal system. When crimes are committed, people do evil things and they need to be punished. Justice needs to be done. You know, the other parts of the Bible talk about don't, you know, woe to the nation that calls the guilty innocent and the innocent guilty. Uh, So there are times when justice needs to be done. There are times when serious wrongs have been perpetrated and people need justice. What it is saying, though, and this is where it applies to across the board to us, is what's more important than your grievance, your rights, your feelings is the unity of God's church and the reputation of Jesus in our community. And that that goes across the board. That goes for how you act at work. That goes for your motivation for what you post on social media. That goes for the, the way you respond in verbal arguments that you have with people who are unbelievers. That goes for everything you do, every decision you make. You should always ask, is this gonna cause one of my brothers to stumble? Is this gonna hurt the unity of God's church? Is this going to hurt the reputation of Jesus in the community? Does this represent him well to those who are lost? we should put those things above our own feelings, our own rights. You see how convicting this is? Even if you've never been in a civil uh, legal action, this applies to you and me every day of our lives. Now now we get to the really good part. This is where we're closing because this sets the stage for next week and a discussion of sexual immorality and how God stands on that and why that's important. But he, he says in verse nine, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. It's one of my favorite sentences in the whole Bible. I'll come back to that. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So you see the flow of Paul's argument. He's just gotten through with this section saying, don't take your disputes within the body of Christ. Don't take those out and and have them arbitrated by unbelievers. And his argument here is, don't you realize they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God? Why are we bringing them into our business? But from there, he launches into and this whole idea of that there are people who are not qualified. He says, don't you realize, originally we were all unqualified. We were all lost. And when he starts listing these sins, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, there are lots of those kinds of lists in the Bible. Remember. These are not random sins that he is listing. This is not the top 10 sins that Paul hates. He's talking to people he knows personally. He's saying, "I know you people. You Corinthians used to be this way. There are people in your church who used to be alcoholics. There are person in your church, there are people in your church" who used to be filled with greed so that you defrauded people all the time of their money. There were people in your church who used to sleep around. There were people in your church who used to worship idols. There were people in your church who used to steal other people's spouses. There were people in your church who used to practice homosexuality. There were people who used to steal, etc., etc., etc. I know that's who you were, but that's not who you are now. See, this is one of the great promises in scripture that what separate, One of the things that separates Christianity from all other world religions, all religions have a moral code. And in fact, if you study the moral code of Islam or Judaism or several other world religions, uh, Mormons, for instance, another, another example, there's a lot in common with the rules that we have as Christians. They're not all the same, but we have a lot in common. Basically, if you follow any of those religions, you'll be a pretty good person. But that's not what Christianity offers. There are rules, there are commands, absolutely, because God cares how we live. But what Christianity offers is not rules. What Christianity offers is new life. New life free of charge, free to us, because Jesus paid the price for it. So you used to be an alcoholic. You used to be a thief. You used to be a homosexual. You used to be an adulterer, but that's not who you are anymore. Such were some of you, Paul says. But you have been washed. In other words, your sins have been washed away. It's not talking about baptism. It's talking about the blood of Jesus that cleanses our sins. You have been sanctified. That's a fancy word, a theological word that means set apart. You used to be just one of the rabble. Now you're set apart. Now you're one of God's children. When you hear about saints, do you realize that the saints are us? We are saints. We're the holy people of God. We're his children. You're sanctified and you've been justified. And This is one of the great promises of scripture. Justified means that whereas before? If you would have stood before God on your judgment day, you would have heard a list of your sins read and then you would have been condemned. But now that Christ has come into your life, you've been justified, which means that when you stand before God, your sins are forgiven and forgotten. You are justified, meaning that when God looks upon you, he sees the perfect record of his son instead of your record of sin, my record of sin, he sees perfection. Is that not reason to rejoice? Is that not reason to shout amen? You have my forgiveness right now if you yell amen, hallelujah, right where you are because this deserves it. And and note, note that homosexuals are part of this. I don't wanna to get too deep into this uh, because this is a subject for a whole another talk, but the Bible's teaching on homosexuality is very different from what our world says. Our world says that homosexuality is an identity—that's who you are—whereas the Bible says, "No, homosexuality is something you do." I've been lazy at times in my life. I've been angry at times in my life. I've been—I've uh, been a gossip. I've—I've uh, I've lied. I, I could tell you all the sins I've committed, none of those define me. In Christ, I'm not defined by my sins. Even the sins I still struggle with, I'm not defined by those. Jesus doesn't look at me and say, that's all you are is just a worthless sinner. No, he looks at me, I've been washed, sanctified, justified. I'm forgiven, I'm his, and I'm perfect in his sight. And that's what he says to anyone who has ever uh, slept with someone of their own gender. He says, don't listen to the world. That's not who you are. That that may be an inclination you have, an orientation that you have, maybe something that you continue to struggle with, but that's not my plan for you. That's not how I see you. I see you as my child. I see you as perfectly forgiven. I see you as sanctified, washed, and justified. And that's good news. That's good news for everybody. So here's here's, here's how we close this out. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you continue to struggle with, when you get discouraged, when you feel down about yourself, you tell yourself, you tell the old man or woman inside of you who keeps wanting to go back into those same old habits, you tell the devil, you tell him, that's not who I am anymore. I don't live that way. You're not in charge, Christ is in charge. And that is some very, very good news. Now, thank you for being with me. I hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, If you have questions, this study probably raised some questions for you. Please email me or call me. I'd love to talk with you further about all this. Next week, I'm on vacation, so we'll skip a week, and then in two weeks, we'll come back with the rest of chapter six. This Sunday, Alan is going to continue our study about your faith at work, uh, looking at how we can earn our voice, how we can live and work and conduct ourselves on the job in such a way that the people who work alongside of us will hear what we have to say and what Christ has done for us. We earn the right to represent Jesus well on the job. Uh, And remember, if you haven't gotten my email, you should have already, but if not, we're planning to resume in-person worship in mid-August I sent you, if you're a member of First Baptist, I sent you a survey to get your thoughts on uh, whether you're ready to come back or not and which service you prefer. That's going to help us plan and also give us an opportunity to recruit volunteers. So I hope you'll respond to that. Looking forward to seeing you again. Y'all have a great week. God bless you.